Welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network. Eddie Conway, former member of the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party, writes in his book, Martial Law, The Life and Times of a Baltimore Black Panther, writing about the death of his brother-in-law in Vietnam about a year after Eddie joined the Army. The loss of someone so young and vibrant always strikes at the heart. As youth, we're so unprepared for death because we thought we would live forever. None of us could see the deathly shadow that hung so heavily over our generation. Yet it was there, Vietnam. Angry and unable to articulate my feelings of loss and grief, I made plans to go. I needed to lash out at someone. This is the dilemma of the man of African descent in this country. Oppression quite naturally creates anger, and all too often that emotion is folded up in the confusion of being American. And then it's directed not at the oppressor, but at the first available target, who quite often looks like us. Now joining us in the studio again is Eddie Conway. Thanks for joining us again. Okay. Uh, one more time, Eddie got out of jail after 44 years of being incarcerated for a crime, which he has always declared his innocence, and I think just about anyone who's ever looked at the case has come to the conclusion that he was innocent. Uh, and, and there's lots of material available. You can go and take a look at the facts uh, on Wikipedia and other places. Um, after 44 years, Eddie is out, and he's back being an activist in Baltimore again. So, so let's go back to that moment. Uh, you've, you're in the Army. Um, at the end of the last segment, you talked about under starting to really, in some ways for the first time, how systemic and structural the racism was in the Army and mm -hmm. beginning to resist. You beat up some Klan's guys and such. Mm -hmm. um, but then, then this hits and you want to you go to Vietnam. You want to go fight. Well, yes, I think, one, I think it was guilt as much as anything else. Uh, my brother-in-law had joined the, uh, the military uh, because I encouraged him to. In fact, it was like four of us joined together. And um, two of us ended up in Europe and two of us ended up in Vietnam. My brother-in-law was one of the people that ended up in Vietnam. Pretty much he was following me. And, uh, and he went over there and he, was, he wasn't over there a hot second before he got ambushed and killed. And I always felt responsible for that. I felt like he wouldn't have been there if he hadn't have been following me. And then I felt like I had a responsibility to revenge his death. And uh, toward that end, and it's at the same time, in spite of the racism in the army, still believing that uh, the communist menace in Vietnam and the threat to Asia was part of America's uh, noble obligation to to make the world safe for democracy. We're what about 1965 now? Uh, we're in '66. '66. We're so in there's 66. a big anti-war movement. Um, yes. There's, there's a lot of people speaking out about the, the injustice yes. of the war and that mm -hmm. it's terrible foreign policy and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but you don't blame U.S. foreign policy. You blame Vietnamese. I blame Vietnamese because it was personal, for one thing. Uh, Two, there was a, a, a tremendous amount of anti-war people uh, uh, in Europe dodging the draft, et cetera. Uh, and, um, but most of them were white. And most of the black people that I came in contact with in Europe was either Africans or evil soldiers. 
and soldiers in the sense of sergeants or corporals or dedicated, committed to the, the military philosophy. Uh, so I still hadn't separated out the America's racism from its racism around the world and its colonialization of people of color all around the world. Uh, and I still kind of at that point still felt like, about that time I was a sergeant in fact, uh, so I had become part of the military apparatus itself and that platoon that I had joined uh, a couple years before, I was actually in charge of it then. And uh, it had became mostly black also. And um, so we, I, I had a vested interest. But you so see a photograph that starts to really shake you. Yes. Uh, it, um, uh, one morning, uh, because I was in charge, I didn't have to go out to formations. I would send my guys out. They would go do whatever they needed to do. Because I didn't bother them, they would actually do it. Uh, and I would get, they would bring me breakfast. And so I'm like in there and I'm sitting on the bed and I'm eating breakfast and I'm reading the newspaper and I open the newspaper up and this is, you know, this is something that I, it still haunts me. I looked at the front of the newspaper, it was the Stars and Stripes. And there in the middle of Newark, New Jersey is a tank. And that tank has a machine gun on it and that machine gun is pointed at 25, 30 black women on the corner and they're protesting. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at that and there's this little white guy, he's sitting there with his fingers like a half an inch from the trigger of that machine gun. And uh, what's important about this is that the bullets were like that, were like huge bullets, of 50 caliber bullets. The gun is driven by electricity, if you press those buttons, it'll fire 25 or 30 times without anything. You, it's, you can't get away from it, it's like it electrocutes you for a minute. You hit it and it bounces so much you can't let it go, even when you're trying to let it go. And it'll fire off 25, 30 rounds. All of those women would have been dead on the corner and I looked at that and I, I said, Dag, that, my mother could be in that crowd of black women there. So I read the story and apparently the National Guard Armory had been uh, robbed of some weapons by some black guys and they went through the black community and locked up every black guy in the community, put them all in a stadium or somewhere, and then they went back and they tore up all the houses in the black community, ripped up the floorboards, whipped in the basements, tore out the walls and whatnot looking for those guns. And the women were out on the street corner protesting because of the way they violated the houses. Not just that the guys were locked up, but they ripped houses up. And then they had the audacity to put a tank in the middle of the community and point guns at unarmed women like this. And so I'm sitting there on my bed and I'm looking up at my locker and there is my uniform, and I'm already, I've already signed up to go to Vietnam, and I'm thinking like, well, wait, what, what the, what's going on here? Something is seriously wrong. 
finally it dawned on me that okay, you're in this army and you're promoting this stuff and they're using that same army in the black community to do what you get ready to go into Vietnam to do. Something's wrong with this picture. I need to get out of the army and go home and see if I can help fix things. And I never put that uniform back on again. From that day, I actually went, had my reenlistment papers tore up, applied for a leave, went on leave, stayed on leave, came back, renewed the leave, and kept doing that until my time was up. And then I had to put that uniform on one last time. I put that uniform on because they wouldn't let you sign out from the Army without being in the uniform. And it was just no way I could avoid that. So I put that uniform on to sign out, right? And then I threw I don't even know if it was the Hudson River. I don't know where I threw it. I threw it in the river up in New York. The uniform. The uniform, right? All of it, right? Um, but I still wasn't jaded. I still thought that, okay, there's problems. Obviously, there's been rides. There's conflict. There's fighting. There's all kinds of stuff going on. This can be fixed. Good people just need to come together, figure out what the problem is, integrate the lunch counter, you know, talk to the police and have them put the dogs away. Whatever, we can, <laughs> we can make a difference, you know. And I'm 21 now, so I'm still idealistic. And I'm still hopeful that, okay, there's problems, but we can fix them. You know, we just need to figure out how to fix them. So and that's why I started working with CORE in NAACP. And what do you do? Well, uh, in Baltimore. The, in Baltimore, the first thing I did when, when I got home, I, I went to John Hopkins and I took a job at John Hopkins. At that time, I was, uh, actually, I was a PA by then because I, I had been trained and all that kind of stuff, right? But I ended up as an operating room technician at John Hopkins. I went to work for John Hopkins and then I started checking to find out what was going on and what was actually happening in the city was that we were trying to get white collar jobs. You know, there's a tremendous black workforce but probably 99% of them were in blue collar jobs and we wanted some of those white collar jobs because what we discovered was even after the Civil Rights Bill passed and all of the, the places were integrated and we were allowed to send our children to college and all of those things, we couldn't afford it on the blue collar salaries. We couldn't afford to go down into the restaurant right. and, and eat. While you're at Hopkins, uh, there's a surgery that takes place. Oh, God. That infuriates you. Yes. and. Uh, it, it, it really infuriated me because, um, you know, by being a medic, by being someone that understood, you know, I worked in hospitals while I was in the military. I understood operating rooms under the procedure, whatnot. There was this particular case where this doctor actually performed a mastectomy. That's the removal of both breasts from a woman. Uh, it's a, at that time, this is 68 now, at that time, it was a three-hour operation. I don't know what kind of time it takes now to do it. Uh, 
but it was dictated uh, by the, the scalpel, the, the, the technology, everything else. It, would, it in general takes three hours. He had a golf game to go to in an hour's time and he literally butchered that woman on the table while I was in the operating black room. Black woman. Black woman in her 50s. Uh, and he, was, he sawed off her breasts, pretty much. And um, all the, because uh, he was the head surgeon, he had surgeons, he had minor surgeons, he had, there were head nurses, there was anesthesiologists, et cetera. There was a resident there, you know, people being trained. So it was like 10 people in the operating room. And what I didn't understand at the time, because I'm still kind of like not, really picking up on this is I was the only black person in the operating room. I didn't realize it at the time. I mean, we were in there doing the job. You know, everybody you had the, the job. You and the woman on the table. Yeah, me. Oh, that's right. That's right. I didn't even consider that. It was 11 people in the operating room, the woman that got killed. Uh, yeah, we should say that she, di she died not long after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she got oh, killed. He yeah, cut murdered. her breasts off and she bled to death. And the whole time there was a, this mild discussion going on between the, the, the junior surgeons and the chief surgeon and the resident. And basically the discussion was, was going on like, oh, we're losing a lot of fluid. Uh, uh, the, the, it's not cauterizing that because at the time you used the electrical scalpel and you cut and it burned both sides and it not just cut the, cut a, a an area, but it also healed or burned or sealed that area if you do it slow enough, right? And uh, but he, but so he was doing it so fast it wasn't cauterizing, and, and then the he blood because he wants to go to a golf game. He wanted to go to the golf game, right? And even hearing that and seeing that and all of that stuff, it was like I was infuriated about it, but. I still, I, I, it still didn't trigger any kind of response for me. It was only after the operation, and you know, I knew she had died, and uh, uh, he was out in the hallway talking to her daughter and her husband. When I came by, I had to go, because I was the operating room technician, I was the person that brought the people in and prepared them and set them up. And so I had to go get the next person. And I don't even know if it was for that room, it was for probably another room because that room wasn't clean. Uh, and as I was on my way to get the next person, I came past, I had to go past through the waiting room and he's standing out there and he's telling this woman and her husband that he did all he could to save her life. And I went temporarily insane. I have to admit to that. In, in the book, you mentioned that behind his back, he's holding his golf. Yeah. His, uh, you know, gloves, and I, so I'm passing club. behind him when he's saying, and I'm seeing him. He's got his golf shoes on, and he's got his golf gloves. In his and I'm like, you're lying, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, and I, I just went off, and I ended up hitting him, and I knocked him down, and... Of course, you know, they call security on me, you know, crazy black man loose in the hospital. I had to end up going to the administration. Uh, and But I'm like, like, look, I was in there. He killed her. Y'all need to charge him. 
is murder. I'm not letting this go. Y'all fixing this. And um, called the Afro. I called, you know, I just, you know. And because I knew he should have been in jail. And everybody's like, no, 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 no. Finally, they. What the Afro did? Well, they said that the only just way the we. Would Afro still Afro is. American, but, yeah. but at that time, particularly, it was a, a big newspaper. Yeah, for the it was a, the, probably the third, third paper in the city mm-hmm. at the time, right? Uh, basically, they said to me, it's like, look, you know, you just a technician. You don't know what doctors know. You can't understand what was motivating uh, driving this whole operation. You need a doctor to look at the records and to verify what you're saying. So I didn't have a problem with that because I'm like, okay, any doctor that look at the record will know that this was murder. You know, all the people in the room knew that, you know. But initially what I did was I went to try to talk to the people in the room, and it was then that it dawned on me that they were all white except for one nurse, which was the Korean nurse. And I said, what's up with this? I didn't even realize I was black, I guess. I mean, in in all fairness, I didn't realize there was a problem there. And I I talked to the Korean nurse, and she's like, no, I can't get involved. I don't, you know. Nobody would say anything. It's the law of silence. You don't say anything about the surgeons. You don't say anything about the big doctors. They're the money makers. I mean, was the Afro saying you're only a technician, or the Afro was saying you're black, you better find somebody white who can say something? No, they were saying I was only a technician, and I needed a doctor to verify you know, to look at the records and to verify. Well, I didn't really at that time. I knew it was murder, and I knew I knew how much time it take for one of those kind of operations, right? Um, so I went throughout the hospital looking for a black doctor because I, 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 I from the operating room, it was clear to me none of the white doctors were gonna say anything at all. So I go to, and, and, and perhaps this is wrong, but this was my personal experience, two black doctors at John Hopkins at that time. One was down, down in pathology, you know, and right away he told me, don't get involved. It happens all the time. These bodies come through here. Forget it, just go on about your business. At the time I had like a GI Bill uh, you know, because I'd been in the Army, I got out, so I was eligible to go to medical school. I was at the time like a PA, so I was going to go to John Hopkins to their medical school. That was my plan, getting into John Hopkins, getting into their school. The tuition was half price because I was an employee. The Army was going to pay for it, et cetera, you know. So I'm looking at a career. But you don't find a black doctor who will speak out. So I leave this guy because he tells me, don't get involved. Don't do it. You know, don't mess yourself up. You know, this is your career. Go, you know, do whatever you need to do to, you know. And I'm like, no, this is not right. I'm not this. I'm not going to go for this. So I go and and of course, I'm asking questions and family. They say, well, there's a black doctor up in uh, uh, hematology. I think it was the blood lab. And uh, so I go up to the lab, and I open the door, 
And here's this black guy in the white smock with coffee and tea and sugar and whatnot. He's the doctor. He's the doctor. And the people sitting around the lab, some of them are just technicians. And he's serving them. He's serving them. And I knew it was, <laughs> I knew that was a ball game for me, right? So I tried to talk to him, and he wasn't trying to hear it at all, and I can't get involved, so on, so on, so I'm doing my residency, blah, 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 you know. So I just went on, and I said, well, okay, and I, I couldn't raise enough help. So they offered me what they said was like, you know, you can go to the University of Maryland. We'll send you down to the University of Maryland. They didn't want to fire you for hitting a doctor in the face. Yeah, yeah they didn't want it to be an incident. Because they knew what Yeah, it because be. they knew I was trying to make it into, and I wasn't trying to make it into an incident. I was incensed that he had killed this woman. You know, I wasn't looking for an incident, but, it, you know, it was there. It just, it happened, did right? You, did you, the family knew how incensed you were? I told the father... Well, the, her husband, I told the daughter. They never did anything. They, you know, I guess they was compensated in some kind of way from by John Hopkins. And um, I wouldn't take the job down the University of Maryland. I just went on and I said, I, you know, I can't be in this profession because of what just happened is not anything that I could allow to happen around me. And so I actually left, you know, but I left basically, I, I went and I said, well, okay, I need to go work somewhere else. And so I was working with CORE in them anyway. So I said, well, okay, I'll go and help integrate the Spurs Point Fire Department. And I left and went there. And you become a fireman. I became a fireman. And you become an organizer. At that time, I became an organizer also. Okay, well, in the next segment of our interview, we're going to talk more with Eddie Conway. He's now becoming not just enraged at what happened at Hopkins, but he's going to put that rage into becoming a much more conscious organizer. So please join us for a continuation of this series on Reality Asserts Itself.